I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd DeShida. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And, you know, how much of a difference we make at this podcast depends in large part on our community of supporters. So if you like the show and you haven't already joined our community, consider a donation. I promise it's easy. All you have to do is literally just go to our website, click the donate button. No gift is too small. All the support we get goes directly to helping us move from a volunteer organization to one <laughs> that is that is paid. And no gift is too large. It's <laughs> a great point. <laughs> so this week, we're going to be digging into the topic of divestment. I, I'm assuming you've already taken your millions and invested them in climate tech. Is that? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got all my millions invested in the climate sector. When I golf with Bill Gates and all those, that's we, we talk about these things, Jason. <laughs> so before we started prepping for this episode, how much did you uh, know about divestment? Very little. I knew, <laughs> I knew a little about, you remember the BCD movement thing with Israel and, and when that was a big deal? You know, that was kind of the first exposure I really had to this idea. And then, of course, I haven't really dove into the details of, of divestment in, for, for climate's sake, but I knew that it existed. I just didn't really realize how serious it was, you know, as a player in the kind of toolbox. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, similarly. I mean, I think I'm probably less versed on sort of the historical use of divestment that, you know, like you're talking about, but I, I very much knew that that the divestment movement was out there and that they were pushing hard. And I didn't appreciate the numbers either, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. really the exciting numbers when you start to yeah, look at them. Totally. So before we get into the details of divestment, I wanted to call out this week's reason for hope, which is that California, for the first time in its history, almost met 100% of its power demand with renewable energy. And according to CalISO, which is what they call their independent system operator that, you know, is sort of has the macro level view of the, mm -hmm. of the grid that on Saturday, April 30th, California met 99.87% of their demand with renewables and about two thirds of that was solar and the balance from, you know, wind and geothermal, et cetera. So really exciting news to see, you know, that here in the U.S., we have, you know, real proof that a, you know, an economy as big as California can can power itself, you know, on on renewable energy. That's crazy. I I really had no idea that. I mean, I guess maybe I haven't been paying attention to what California's power mix has been like here recently, but I had no clue there that anybody was even close, much less, you know, a state as large as as California was to to be in on all renewable at any given time, right? I mean, that's that's huge. That's amazing. I mean, California is, what, the fifth, sixth biggest economy in the world. So pretty exciting that, you know, that they're to that point where they can have days where they're getting all their energy from, from renewables. Yeah, that's really cool. So let's, let's pivot to our, our main topic today. And, you know, as we indicated earlier, divestment is really, you know, turning into a bright spot. In, in the climate movement and having real impacts on, on the fossil fuel industry. 
back in 2014, the divestment movement was sitting at about 52 billion. And as of 2022, it has now hit 40 trillion. Yeah, that's an amazing number. I I don't know. Yeah, I've heard stories here recently rumbling up about about Texas. We're going back to Texas. They passed a law that prohibits banks and and from doing business with the state uh, if they engage in boycotting and divestment from fossil fuels. And they're just, you know, they're pissed. <laughs> and you don't mess with Texas. And so they, they've passed this law. And then other states now, and this is the unfortunate thing, you know, any state does something like this, and then everybody else that kind of aligns themselves with that with that political stance is going to jump on board, you know, so other states are considering right. sim- doing similar th- things. But, you know, <laughs> the reality of it is, is that it's kind of difficult to do because, you know, when you have, like you said, $40 trillion worth of this stuff out there, it's pretty hard to find out who's invested in what. It's hard to unpackage all of this stuff. And they're having just a real hell of a time trying to audit any of these portfolios to find out who they need to <laughs> who they need who to they exclude need to boycott. yeah they, they can't do it it's been a real quagmire for them i think yeah I, while it's it's frustrating to see such a blatantly political move and one that's short-sighted it does speak to how big of an impact divestment is having right so enough about texas and their uh their efforts to uh undermine the divestment movement Our guest today is Zach Stein. He is the co-founder of Carbon Collective, an online investment advisor that provides low-fee, diversified investment portfolios built around the idea of of solving climate change. He is also the author of The Ultimate Guide to Sustainable Investing. that talks about why sustainable investing is a smart investment over the long term. And prior to founding Carbon Collective, he's also founded a company called Urban Worm, that was focused on turning food waste into premium compost and co-founded an organization called Osmo Systems that was an innovative low-cost water quality sensor and monitoring platform. Zach holds a degree in psychology from Hamilton College and lives in the Bay Area with his wife. Zach, welcome to uh, Climate Optimist. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Great to be here. So we'll start you off uh, with a basic question. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? There's a few things that make me hopeful. Um, first, I think just broadly being in the climate tech ecosystem is the level of excitement and enthusiasm and, and frankly, capital and talent that is coming into this space. We're a little bit late to the game in it, but better late than never. The other things that give me a lot of hope, let me actually take a step back. I think one of the greatest drivers of fear in climate are the exponential downsides of it. This is where the forest fires that released ash up in the atmosphere cause little bits of black to fall into the ice, which accelerate more uh, melting in the Arctic. Those type of accelerating drivers, uh, they're the things that keep me up at night, those exponential forces. What gives me hope is that we also have exponential forces on our side. Uh, 
uh, when we look at some of the transitions of technology, in particular electric cars, but also solar, wind, batteries, and electrical generation, we believe that we are in a fundamental shift where we are going to see an exponential transition, for example, from combustion engines into electric vehicles. And that's really powerful. Once those take hold, it can happen way faster than we realize. Yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, we all know how the smartphone, you know, initially there was some skepticism, but hey, it's it's ubiquitous now. So yeah, I mean, if we think back to the switch from the horse and buggy to the automobile, it's not like there are a bunch of gas stations around, you know, a lot of right. the kind of criticisms of saying like, oh, well, you know, EVs are hard, you know, it's harder to do. It's like, yeah, of course, the existing infrastructure is built for an inferior technology. So there's some lag time, but the market also responds. So I you know, believe that in 10 years, we're going to see likely a lot more gas stations with EV chargers in it than gas pumps. Before we kind of dive into to climate finance, just kind of interested in uh, sort of your, your high-level journey to, to where you are. Yeah, I've had a very meandering uh, career path. Uh, the phrase I like to use is life is only linear in the rearview mirror. Okay. Um, and if I look backwards, I could connect all of the dots. But if I was 22 and looking forwards, I'd be like, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> uh, so basically been in sustainability for the past 10 years. And I started in agriculture in that space. That was actually the first company that my co-founder and I launched trying to help a dirty part of agriculture get a bit cleaner. And then in it was a really hard technical problem that we were working on. And it's ultimately what stopped us. We had great investors, great engineers. We couldn't get it over the finish line. So in 2020, we set out to try and investigate a new problem, which was climate. And for us, what we saw is that one of the greatest challenges of this decade is going to be as an individual, what do I do with my climate anxiety? We so often just get left at the top of the emotional loop where we're just like, holy shit, this is terrifying. That leads to you checking out from it uh, or just living in this constant state of fear. And so we were looking at how can we close the loop for folks? Because being caught at the top doesn't actually help advance us. It's not actually a useful place to be. Right. And so how could we build better tools to collectivize our climate actions? And so we started with a whiteboard. We didn't know exactly what that was going to be, but we tried to go through a process of product discovery. And investing was this place again and again that became really clear that people are saying, all right. I know at a gut level, we need to invest our way into solving climate change. We have to build that world that's powered by renewable energy that is you know, running on all electrified fleets. That takes money. Why, when I look at my ESG-funded portfolio, do I see all these companies that don't make any sense? And so that became clear that that's something that we really wanted to explore. And so it was from that perspective, as people who very actively felt that pain ourselves, that we went into it. Um, The other thing that we saw is that in that is that people, they really like index-based investing. Vanguard and these other things that said, invest with the market with with as low fees as possible. So we're like, all right, we can't break that mold. How do we take that mold, but then apply it in the the lens and, and viewpoint of climate change? And so that's the result was Carbon Collective. Well, exciting journey that you're on and obviously wish you the best of luck with that. So that creates a good segue. Let's let's talk about, you know, fossil fuel divestment for those who may not be aware of what it is and and why, you know, it why it matters. 
Totally. So, and you and I talked about this in our first conversation, because it's this ongoing debate of should you, as an activist investor, someone who really cares about climate change, should you own a fossil fuel company? Because if you own them, you have the capability to vote. You can vote and you can use your shares. You can say, I'm an owner in Exxon, and therefore I get a seat at the table. I get a stake at talking about key issues um, for Exxon. Is that something that you should do? Is it almost a necessary evil to hold? So this right. in the investment world is called the, the engage versus di- divest debate. And we very much fall on the side of divest. And the reason why for that is we, in playing it out, we actually don't see a world where engaging fossil fuel companies to voluntarily reduce their supply of fossil fuels is going to have any tangible climate benefit. Because even, let's say, if we get ExxonMobil to agree to become a solar company, they are just going to sell those oil fields to someone else. And whoever buys those, they're not, unless it's the Nature Conservancy or something like that, uh, (laughs) is, is buying them to extract the oil and make money off of them. So, Uh, We can often get kind of caught in our own way of saying, oh, fossil fuels are the bad guys. We need to be David standing up to Goliath and going to try and take it to them as shareholders. And we think that that can be really inspiring, but not actually pragmatically what we should be doing. Instead, we should divest from fossil fuels. We should not hold them. And instead, we should use and focus our energy on focusing on their customers. How do we get uh, companies that can stop using fossil fuels, switch to 100% renewable energy to do so, and to do so as quickly as possible. So effectively moving to kind of sway the the end customer, if you will, the end energy customer, be that a, you know, a consumer product company or, or what have you. Exactly. You got it. Because if we don't do that, then it's just, it's really hard to draw the line of how do we actually have a reduction in emissions? Because if you have customers lining up around the block to buy fossil fuels, you're not going to be able to reduce the actual consumption of fossil fuels until you address that and divert them to something better. And luckily, better things exist. And so kind of summarizing for you know folks who this terminology is new, you've got the engage, which is really like taking the fight to the, to the companies themselves, the oil companies. And then the divest is, hey, let's take our money out. And then in a way, you're sort of saying, let's engage with you know, entities where we think we can affect change. Exactly. ExxonMobil gets out of oil when oil becomes a bad business. ExxonMobil will not be able to make oil a bad business. Well, and and in that vein, I guess, do you have a sense of kind of like what scale is needed for divestment to really have the impact that it's intended to? Totally. So we're definitely already starting to see it. Um, and this is where we get into what is the what is the impact of uh, your stocks? Because when you hold a share of a company, it's actually a used stock. The stock market is much more like eBay than it is like Walmart. You're buying used stocks. Um, and so what is the actual impact of buying and selling them? We like to talk about three real impacts. Uh, the first is voting. This is what we talked about. That's engagement. It's a, a tool that we as climate activist investors really have just scratched the surface on using. The second is share price. The share price of a stock is purely driven by supply and demand of that stock. If there are more people who want to buy the stock than sellers, the price go up. 
the reverse, the price goes down. So when we buy and hold shares in our, especially our retirement funds, which isn't going to be touched, you know, for 10, 20, 30 years, we're not going to have changes. That's effectively re- reducing the supply of shares of, of that company on the market. And when that supply is lower, if that company has a good quarter, it'll cause its share price to go up faster, which can lower its cost of capital and help it expand faster. This is exactly what we want to have happen for climate solutions companies. We want them to have the lowest cost of capital possible so they can invest the most in expansion. And we want the opposite to be true for fossil fuel companies. And then the final thing, and I think that this gets maybe the most directly to your question, is narrative. This is really intangible, but the stock market runs on broad, deep undercurrents of narrative. And one of them is that fossil fuels are a really important part of a balanced investment portfolio. Another one is that investing sustainably in things like climate solutions is charity, that you are accepting a fundamentally worse return in order to invest with your values. And those are both wrong. They've been wrong for the past 30 years, and they are likely to be wrong going forward. But the fact that the narrative persists, the stock market especially, is somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so if enough people believe that this is a smart way to invest, it becomes a smart way to invest. And so that's part of making that change, but then also talking about it. It is just as important of making the change itself is to talk about it. Um, and to push on that narrative and challenge it, that's how we also drive change and have that drive upward. You know, I haven't heard it put that way, but the, you know, that makes sense. Just curious, you know, we're talking here about fossil fuels, but are there other examples of where, you know, divestment has been an effective tool in the past? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You can go back and this has been something that's been studied by economists really closely. I think that there's still better research to be done. What I still haven't seen is there's been a lot of pressure in the divestment world over in the 2010s and especially a lot of big endowments and stuff left by that. I think it's something like $15 trillion that is pledged to divest or is already divested from fossil fuels. And there's been stuff looking at the short term. What's interesting uh, to see is what would happen over the long term. Fossil fuel companies list divestment as a material risk in their 10 case for them. So it is something that they're very, very well aware of. I guess one of the questions I have is when we kind of look at where the money sits or the opportunity, if you will, for, for divestment, can you speak to how much of it is in sort of individual investing? How much of it is maybe in let's say things like pension funds and and endowments and again rough numbers but just trying to get a sense of like if we're talking about the need to divest what are the various buckets that really need to to shed their investments to have the desired impact yeah so one third of all assets that are held publicly held assets as so stocks and bonds in the US are held by individuals in plans that we control so this is our, um, you know, our personal investments, our IRAs, and to some degree, our 401ks with that. Um, pension funds are outside of that. So that's one third. That, that is quite a big slice of that pie. And we have the power to push markets. Um, we saw that uh, in the past couple of years, pretty famously with things like, you know, GameStop and these other meme stocks in which individuals were really able to take and push power with that. So as we're, you know, talking about divestment, clearly I think, you know, folks can connect the dots and see the the value of like, let's get out of the thing that's causing the damage and that has 
you know, financial consequences for that that industry. But then it's obviously equally important to take those dollars and put them in a place that's going to to help us, right? Transition to the climate solutions that we need. Wondering if you can talk about what, you know, moving those dollars, investing them in climate solutions, what that does, like how that helps. And then if you have a sense of the scale of the investment that's needed to get us to where we, we need to be. Yeah, it's a great question. So climate change, the good news, it is a, it is a solvable problem. We know what we have to do. The only way we solve it, though, is we have to build our way out of it. We have to invest our way into it. And uh, there are really good plans that have been put together of what that's going to take. It's somewhere between, as a globe, we need to be investing between five to nine trillion more dollars, huge number, per year into climate solutions. And we can break that down in some interesting ways. Right now, in this decade, there's two things that we should really be doing with those investments. The first is massively scaling the things that already work and are profitable. So that is solar, wind, batteries, and electric cars. These are proven in the market. They work really well. And it is not charity to adopt them. It often makes sense to do so. And it's not just investment in the company and in, in the stock market, but it's literally just the number of dollars that are going into building projects like that. That's what we need to hit. There's, again, a lot of good news and reasons for optimism. I read a stat the other day that it was 93% of the electri- new electrical generation projects waiting to come online in the US are renewable. That's great. It's exactly what we need. We need to get them online way faster. That's where things like legislation are going to need to come in um, and further innovation of how do you work around some of the complexities of our current system, microgrids, et cetera. So that's the first thing we have to do right now is massively scale the things that work. Because again, the more money, let's say we're putting into electric cars, the faster we make them cheaper, the faster we make them cheaper to buy up front and the faster that adoption curve. Uh, The second thing that we need to be doing is investing in the next generation of what's needed in climate tech. So there are certain industries that are harder to get fossil fuels out of. And so there's uh, a lot of them could use hydrogen, for example. Um, That isn't as an industry, especially for green hydrogen, which is used producing 100% renewable energy, is just getting its financial footing under it, in which I mean, we are just seeing business models in which it is starting to be profitable to do that. There's a lot of promise, but we still need a lot more dollars to go into that. So there's a lot of technologies that are not yet fully there that we also need to be investing in so that by the time we hit 2030, they are ready and at the point they're where solar and wind are today. I guess I'm wondering, because we always have our, try to give our listeners something that they can do. And there's sort of the obvious with this of like, consider, you know, where your money sits and where you might want to invest. Are there, are there other things when we're talking about the need to invest more heavily in climate solutions that people can be doing? In other words, are there legislative things? Is it really about focusing on your own portfolio? Is it about, you know, spreading the word to others? The first step is going to be changing if you do have investments yourself is again, doing that step of pick it up, look at it from all sides. And if you're in a place where you can make the change, make the change. Because if you haven't done that yourself, you're not going to be in as good a position to talk about it with others. Once you've done that, there's then a lot of really great places that you can go to. If you work at a company, talk to HR, talk to your colleagues. 
Um, what's in your company's 401k plan? Should there be better options there? I think so often when it comes for investing, we feel like we are supposed to settle for less of saying, oh, there's like, you know, it's just not a, it, it, there's reasons that you wouldn't understand and I'm going to throw a bunch of financial jargon at you or no, like, you know, we'll hand it, handle it in 2023 that we're going to have a review then. When it comes to sustainable investing, it is both very complicated and very simple. And the simple answer is if a portfolio is not aligned with solving climate change, which means it is aligned with dramatically increasing investments into climate solutions over the next 30 years and dramatically decreasing investments into fossil fuels, it is really hard to see that it is sustainable. And the more of us that can say this is no longer acceptable, that's how we change the status quo. I have not yet heard a counter theory of change to the world only changes when enough people decide to change it. It happens bottom up. You know, you could say, yes, it's changing a government and yes, it's changing corporations. But what changes a government? What changes a corporation? It's enough people hitting that tipping point, working strategically to do that. Um, So the world only changes when people like you decide to change it and when enough people do it together. So start with yourself. Um, and then like an airline, help those around you. Yeah. Well, hey, I'd like to pitch for uh, for advocacy. We, we definitely are big fans of that here at Climate Optimists. And the idea that, you know, the more we speak up, the more we take action uh, collectively, it, it makes an impact. Well, Zach, thank you for coming on and uh, educating us, maybe giving us just enough to be dangerous when it comes to, to climate finance and divestment, but certainly a promising area and exciting that there is a growing movement and and knowing what you know impacts that will have right as we continue to move dollars away from you know our fossil fuel economy and into you know our climate future so thanks for coming on and and sharing with us Jason I so appreciate being here thank you for all the work that you're doing and we only solve climate change when we are optimistic about it the better world that we build only comes when enough people imagine it and hold it and can taste it and smell it when that happens we can build it so thank you for all of your work in this space so todd what uh were your thoughts on the interview with zach well you know i tell you when people start talking about all this finance stuff my brain just starts to melt down but (laughs) i thought he did a great job of explaining it i did i liked how positive he was too about some of the stuff he talked about early on about the exponential unknown forces that are at play and you know just how fast some of these things are changing around us that seem to be moving in a good direction for climate you know i think when he talked about individual climate anxiety and what we can all do you know that that obviously hits right at the home of kind of what what we're trying to do here you know on the podcast so i really uh, you know could relate to to some of that and it seems like it's happening and it seems like it's a very doable doable thing that that we can all in our own way even participate in so that that's kind of what i took away from it yeah what what were your thoughts uh yeah i mean i always appreciate a a positive outlook um especially when it's you know backed up with with good facts and while you know it's clearly going to take us time independent of divestment to unravel ourselves from fossil fuels, it's exciting to see that things are already contracting. I think most people in the US are aware that, you know, the coal industry has, has been winding down, you know, because of cheaper renewables and also at, you know, at least up until 
blatantly cheap natural gas. But the thing I didn't appreciate until the conversation with Zach was the other, you know, positive sort of underlying trends that are taking place. And, you know, you've you had the oil and gas sector like in 1980 that, you know, held seven of the top 10 spots on the S&P 500. And today it holds none. Mm. You know, he talked about this kind of transformation that we need to go through and how, you know, it's kind of this, you know, reinforcing feedback loop and it's about conversations and it all starts to add up. And, and it really is when you start to look at the numbers. Right. Yeah. I was interested to hear your term feedback loop. And when he talked about, you know, we have to start talking about this stuff because you have to get people comfortable accepting that this is a reality of something that is going to work. And when he right. talked about the stock market and how people just wheel things into being, like if somebody gets scared about something, it doesn't even matter if it's real. They get scared and then everybody else gets scared and the whole thing goes bananas. And yeah, and maybe in our case, in this case, it could be a good thing because if you just start this narrative going that this is going to work, then people will just start to believe that it'll work and, and they will kind of will it into being. So, so maybe it could work as a good thing. It just, that whole thing freaks me out. The way that the, <laughs> the way that stock market works freaks me out. Yeah, it definitely has a mind of its own. And I, I agree with you. I mean, you, you know, you look at the price of oil spiking with, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm-hmm. there wasn't supply shortages, right? It was no. all these speculators that drove up the price in anticipation of right. supply shortages. And so, yeah, I think his comment about the changing the narrative is really a valid one. And, you know, it's clearly permeated, you know, fossil fuel organizations, even, you know, even analytics firms like Moody's are warning about the risks of, you know, coal divestment mm. and talking about how it's going to be more challenging to get new oil and gas infrastructure in place. You know, it's like everybody's sort of pushing on the on the rock, you know, at mm-hmm. the top of the hill. Yeah. And then once once it breaks loose, then it's going to be rapid change, you know. Yeah, the the winds of change seem to be seem to be blowing here. You know, it's much easier to convince a bank to get on board or a foundation or a university if you already have one that's committed. And the reality right. is they have all that, right? They have a bunch of universities that have committed to divest. You know, huge yeah. foundations like the Ford Foundation. They've got the Canadian National Pension Fund and, and one from the Netherlands that have committed. So it's like the momentum is definitely in their favor, and it, it's going to make it much easier to convince those next big, next set of big players, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the the other thing I like that you know Zach talked about, and you know we've talked about in our episodes where we've been focusing on renewables, how important, you know, that access to capital is. And so the more the money is flowing in that direction, the easier it's going to be for these, you know, fledgling technologies and, you know, even established players like the wind and the solar industry, right? The easier it is to get access to the money, the more it enables the type of rapid expansion that we need. So, you know, we've been bouncing around here a little bit, but I think the reality is there's a couple, you know, key points when we're talking about divestment. It's it's clearly a real movement and it's having real impacts today. It's something that we can all participate in. And as much as we need to divest, it's almost equally important that we turn that that money and invest it in climate solutions if we want to hit our, you know, hit the targets that we need to to avoid climate change impacts that none of us want to see. Right. So yeah, with that, what what can we do? 
I think from a climate optimist perspective, there's at least two standout options. The first is consider joining an organization that is pushing for divestment. There are many of them out there, but 350.org has really been a leader in the divestment movement and is a big organization that has chapters around the globe. So if there isn't a an organization that you already have in mind, you know, something that's maybe more local, definitely consider getting involved with with 350.org because they're doing great work around divestment. And I think the second option is, you know, if you haven't already, take a look at your your investment portfolio, no matter whether it's, you know, in a shoebox under your bed or <laughs> or whether you already have it, you know, in in retirement accounts with with Vanguard, take an opportunity to look at you know, where your money sits and look for opportunities to move that away from fossil fuels and into climate change solutions. And I think once you've done that, then it's really that next step of, you know, approaching your your company if they have a 401k plan and and asking them about divestment as well. Cool. I'm on it. <laughs> well, I think that's a wrap for this week. Thanks as always for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. <laughs>